This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Dan Loney. Welcome back. Hour number two of Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111. Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. President Trump revealed his plan to tackle the opioid crisis in this country uh, in New Hampshire. The headline that many people are talking about today is his plan to offer the death penalty to certain drug dealers who might be responsible for hundreds of deaths through the illegal distribution of these drugs. But there are other important elements to discuss, like how we help those people right now and in the future that may need opioids of some kind for pain relief. Joining us to discuss that, Dr. Evan Anderson, who is a senior fellow at Penn Center for Public Health Initiatives, and he's also a senior lecturer at the School of Nursing here at the University of Pennsylvania. And also joining us is Dr. Anita Gupta, who is a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton University. Uh, Evan, Anita, great to have you both with us. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I guess let's start with the reaction to on the medical side to what uh, President Trump said yesterday. Evan, I'll let you start. Um, sure. So um, first, uh, President Trump should be commended for continuing to draw attention to this very important issue. We have a, an enormous problem with um, opioid use and opioid overdose. So it's great. It's great that he continues to um, raise the profile of the issue. There is much alike in his brief briefing yesterday. Um, he suggested more support for broadening access to treatment. That's a great thing. Um, unfortunately, um, as your preview of the segment suggested, um, he also um, indicated support for harsher criminalization of uh, drug trafficking, and that is very much problematic. Um, in, in my opinion, and in the opinion of most people who um, have studied this issue. Anita, your thoughts? Yes, I agree. I mean, you know, first of all, I agree that, you know, it's it's first the fact that there's a lot of attention on this issue is is wonderful. I mean, we need to destigmatize this issue. Uh, we need to get people treatment uh, that have been hit by the opioid crisis. And, and the fact that you know, in New Hampshire alone, I mean, that is one of the hardest hit uh, states in the United States of America. I mean, behind West Virginia and Ohio, New Hampshire is right uh, behind uh, those two states in, in deaths by over opioid overdoses. So, you know, it's not a surprise that he went there to discuss this issue. Uh, but that being said, uh, the, the, the three-pronged approach that he presented of, you know, prevention, um, you know, educational initiatives, and then stricter law enforcement, you know, are important issues. But the the third being, you know, death penalty to, to drug traffickers, you know, raises some red flags and, and, you know, things that will likely litigate, you know, for many years to come if it does go through legislation. All right. Well, let, let's focus on the medical side of this uh, for a little while. Uh, and Evan, uh, what are the most encouraging parts from the medical perspective that you think we need to address right now? I mean, he mentioned the role of Big Pharma. He talked about a public awareness campaign. Where are the most important areas that you focus on? Um, I think most important is tricky because they're all important. Right, yeah. Um, 
reducing, you know, reducing overprescribing of opioids is is certainly something that we need to continue to to work on. Um, this is not to say that opioids don't play essential roles in healthcare; they do. Um, but there's, you know, enormous amount of evidence that we continue to prescribe too many opioids um, in instances when they're they're not necessary and they're not even efficacious um, often. So that's that's really important. You know, his his plan doesn't specify how they're going to do that. It sets some targets, which makes sense. But um, we, we'll want to hear details, and those details will be really important because there are potential costs with um, restricting access. Anita? Um, so that, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead, Evan. No, no, no. Please, please, yeah. Okay, Anita? Sure. sure. Uh, you know, I agree. I mean, there there definitely needs to be a discussion on economics, you know, and how this will cost, you know, the medical system. I mean, you know, patients indeed do need prevention, but we do know medication-assisted treatment does have a significant cost element to it, and advancing prevention treatment uh, does as well. And I believe the, you know, Congressional Budget Office did approve some funding, but that may not cover the entire cost of what he has proposed. So, you know, the question of economics and, and addressing the healthcare system, you know, entirely addressing the opioid crisis, you know, these are questions that have yet to be answered. But, you know, the, the fact that remains is that there is a discussion that's occurring, um, and I'm happy that's occurring because that begins the destigmatization uh, that, again, so many patients are suffering, and, and, you know, especially in Philadelphia, you know, where we know there's there's many patients that are still not getting access to treatment uh, that do need it, uh, you know, to this, to this day. And, and Anita, he m- mentioned in his speech this Safe Station initiative that they're doing uh, where he spoke y- uh, yesterday in Manchester, New Hampshire, uh, mm-hmm. involving the fire department there, which I guess they are basically allowing those people that have an issue with opioids to come in and they, the, the fire department and, and the paramedics would obviously try and help those people kind of start down that road to get, tr- get treatment. Those are the type of programs I think that, that potentially have a, have a great impact. Absolutely. I mean, the, the program that you're talking about safe station uh, is, it has actually gotten a lot of attention and it basically allows people to seek assistance who are battling drug and alcohol addiction without the fear of address, you know, arrest, arrest. And, you know, that is a big, you know, advantage. You know, many individuals feel stigmatized. You know, they don't want to seek assistance or any type of treatment when they're dealing with opioid, you know, abuse because either they feel they will go to jail or they'll be arrested. And so Safe Station um, has, you know, received a lot of um, notoriety because of the work that they've done in the New Hampshire area, and he believes that it is a model um, that the, the U.S. and New Hampshire and other states can follow to build upon. And, you know, and hopefully it'll help others, you know, with similar situations. And we know that incarceration of individuals who need treatment, um, we know that many people that are incarcerated still need addiction and prevention treatment. So this addresses a big gap uh, individuals who are suffering with substance use disorder. And, and I guess, Anita, that that is in part where the, the financing piece can come into play, is having the additional financing to deal with some of these types of programs to support them, but also to build them out in other locations, as you said, with some of these states like West Virginia and Ohio, where the problem is is just as significant as it is in New Hampshire or even to a degree here in Philadelphia. 
That's right. That's right. I mean, you know, we know that it absolutely is a big issue in incarceration. Again, you know, we know that drug courts and incarceration, um, you know, there's a lot of evidence that these types of systems can perpetuate the problem in itself. And so if we can get individuals into treatment while they're going through these uh, situations, we can probably get them better. Evan, what is the what is the the impact that these types of programs can have really at the base level? Because I, I think we at times overlook. We try and go for that home run type of of solution, and in the in a lot of cases, it's really at times the the simplest idea that may be able to have the greatest impact, like something potentially like this that they're doing in New Hampshire. I, I think that's right. Um, we um, and I and I entirely agree with. Uh, with Adida, um, and this gives me a little opportunity to plug a, a Philadelphia-based program, which just opened last week, which is a, a slightly different model, but it's, it's similar, and it's called Police Assisted Diversion. Um, this is a pre-arrest diversion program. So this is actually trying to, di- to divert individuals before they're even arrested for small, for small crimes um, into treatment. And um, we're really hopeful that it's going to reduce costs and it's going to really help these individuals and their communities. And there's actually a mechanism in this program where um, police can intervene and help individuals even when there's no sort of criminal activity afoot. They can just wave down a police officer and ask for a ride to a treatment facility. So it's, it's similar to the model that, that um, you were just mentioning. And I think this is wonderful. This is really the role of localities and states. Uh, they are on the front lines of this epidemic, and they're poised to innovate, to try things, and we ought to vigorously study these innovations. And um, to the extent that President Trump um, can can sort of allow um, localities and states to experiment like this, it really makes a lot of sense. And, and because in a lot of cases, and it sounds like with the program you talked about here in Philadelphia and, and what we are hearing from New Hampshire, it really comes down to a relationship and trust issue between the person that is having the problems with the opioid addiction and having that trust in the fire officer, the paramedic or the police officer to be able to take that first step towards getting some help, Evan. That's absolutely right. I mean, it, it you couldn't you couldn't say that better. Um, it's. In this respect, these sorts of programs are also really important about, you know, sort of helping communities um, get back together and to healing some of the fissures in communities. Um, the, the service providers are on the front lines, so they, they see this every day. And, um, you know, I think these programs are wonderful. It's the right it's the right approach to the problem, to be sure. You mentioned about the, the, the prescribing uh, of opioids. And, and how do you deal with, with that part of the issue in your mind, Evan? Because, I mean, the, the, the fact that there are people that have overages on their, uh, on their prescription and uh, that becomes an issue, how do we deal with that part of it in your mind? Yeah, so great question. Uh, we, we need to continue to engage in... Um, really comprehensive education and re-education of um, prescribers. There, there's some evidence that older prescribers who are a little farther away from their training continue to prescribe too many opioids because they were trained at a time when that was that was more the norm, and the younger generation tends to prescribe a little bit more, um, a little bit more carefully. So we want to continue to educate. We also have to 
appreciate the sort of systemic stresses in our healthcare system. Um, you know, in a system that privileges volume, where um, providers are under pressure to move very quickly, it's always going to be the case that there is some this emphasis on making a prescription, which takes a few a few seconds, and not counseling a patient that you know pain is often a necessary and very normal part of the experience post-surgery. Then, Anita, because of that issue that Evan mentioned in terms of volume, uh, and part of that, I would think, uh, really plays into what big pharma needs to consider moving forward. Sure. I, you know, I think that, you know, I, first of all, I agree with everything that Evan had mentioned, but I think big pharma really has to address finding safe, effective, non-addictive strategies. And I think a lot of companies are doing that, you know, finding things that remove the option of opioids from the whole spectrum. I mean, many people believe that after surgery, you know, is the first, you know, time that people have that first try of opioids. And if we can find new innovative me- medications and technologies that can treat um, patients with for pain better at that time point, maybe we can, you know, prevent the use of opioids altogether, or at least minimize it. Um, and that, that could be a good way to decrease that doorway to addiction altogether. And I think a lot of companies are working on that um, and trying to innovate. And I, I agree, you know, um, promoting, you know, the use of, you know, better um, alternatives, um, you know, obviously supporting cutting-edge research um, and, and helping people understand, you know, both physicians and patients, you know, what to do, you know, if you are um, taking an opioid. I think a lot of people... Um, still rely on opioids for chronic pain, um, for cancer pain, um, end-of-life pain, um, and understanding when and how to use them safely. And if you get in trouble, how to deal with an overdose. You know, I think um, we talked about it before, but naloxone is an important um, component in education and, and prevention. So, you know, understanding that. Uh, in the discussion as well is quite critical. President Trump, Evan, uh, he also talked about a public awareness campaign yesterday. And uh, obviously we don't know exactly how that would all come about. Obviously there were, were some reporting about, you know, if it would be primarily TV-based, Internet-based, however that would go about. How effective do you think that type of an approach can be as part of this overall idea of trying to tackle opioids? I think, you know, it's a difficult question and it's a difficult thing to study. I mean, broadly speaking, um, public health people engage in a lot of education campaigns, but we're also mindful of the fact that um, information alone seldom changes behavior. Most of us know about the risks of using our cell phone while we drive. Most of us continue to do that because the world conspires against us to answer our call when we're behind the wheel. Um, Education is fine, but it needs to be backed up with changes to the environment in which um, people sort of encounter these drugs or don't encounter them. So I think it's it's certainly a a nice education campaign can help. Um, It's not likely to change behavior on its own. Anita? I agree. I think, you know, you have to, you know, have a robust educational campaign that's multi-pronged. I mean, not just uh, advertisements that, you know, will go only in one population of individuals. I think it has to be multi-pronged that, you know, gets to patients, to get to prescribers, uh, get to individuals that are high risk, you know, in the states that I mentioned, New Hampshire, West Virginia, and Ohio, and those pockets of areas where, 
there's populations of individuals that are, you know, struck deeply with the opioid crisis and, and need dire education. Um, and finding those populations can be very difficult to do. And so how the education is delivered, what format, who will be on the ground delivering the information, um, and to what detail, you know, is yet to be determined. Well, and part of that, uh, and I will throw this in from personal experience in knowing New Hampshire and West Virginia to a degree, is that some of these people that that are involved in these issues are so separated from just the general public in, in you know, reasonably sized cities that it is incredibly hard to be able to reach out to these people. And it's also incredibly hard to need it for those people to reach out because they are so pulled apart from the public in general. You're right. You're right. I mean, they just don't know where to go. They don't know where to access information. They're so disconnected uh, from this entire, you know, world, you know, that they don't even know where to go from injury. And they're not even connected. So it, it is, it is the truth. I mean, they, they, we just don't know how to reach those people. So how, how will it happen to get to the people who really need it the most? How do you think you handle that particular issue, Evan? That is an issue where I think education can really help um, getting out into these communities and, you know, the federal government can play a role in supporting that type of work and really going out and meeting people where they are. The, you know, one of the challenges to addressing this national epidemic is that it, it takes on different manifestations in different places. And even the, even the sort of primary um, drugs, fentanyl is really important on the East Coast, so less important on the West Coast. Important differences like that really amplify the fact that a lot of solutions are local um, and really, you know, will succeed if they they sort of leverage local um, knowledge. What do you think? uh, One of the other things that that President Trump brought up is this idea of a database regarding prescription drugs. Uh, Obviously, we are in a much more uh, technology-driven society than we were, let's say, 15 years ago. Uh, but there, I guess from a lot of people's perspectives, they wonder if you can put together the type of system that we really need to have uh, to have an idea of where all of these prescription drugs would be going and the amounts that are being divvied out. Uh, do you think that's something that, that could work, that, that does have a place in this? Yes, and the evidence supports these um, so-called prescription drug monitoring databases. Um, they've been rolled out in a number of states, and uh, those, rollouts have, those rollouts have been studied. And the research suggests pretty clearly that it reduces uh, overdoses and prescribing, which is great. Um, so um, these are a useful tool if they're designed appropriately and if um, providers are encouraged to use them consistently. And so, Anita, then, I mean, it's something that realistically is probably more linked into the state level than you would want to try and do at, the, at, at potentially at the federal level. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the PDMPs, uh, the prescription drug monitoring programs, have been highly effective. I mean, there's growing evidence to show that they have had um, some benefit on the state level, but there's still some hurdles ahead. And And I think that um, interoperability, but between states, meaning, you know, if I was in New Jersey and, and I have a patient that's going between New Jersey and Pennsylvania, doctor shopping, you know, how do I know, you know, and having connectivity between two databases is still a little bit of a struggle, um, but that's getting better. There's discussions in improving that. 
and and certainly, you know, making sure that um, we have a federal discussion, as you mentioned, is certainly, you know, needs to be on the table. And I, I think more data with PDMPs as we collect data, um, we'll have better ideas of how prescribers are prescribing opioids and how we can improve the process um, with time. And, and with that data, I think we'll, we'll just do better. Joining us on the show, Dr. Evan Anderson from the University of Pennsylvania and Dr. Anita Gupta uh, of Princeton University. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I, I did want to go back and I wanted to touch on on the policy side of this for a second, Evan, because uh, uh, not necessarily this idea of of uh, uh, of the, the the harsh penalties that President Trump talked about, but there is an element, obviously, of this where you have the underground or the black market and the use of these drugs getting into the hands of people that probably don't need it. How do we deal with that part of it when it is, to a degree, I, I think, an unknown? Uh, we face significant challenges on on this front. It's very easy to move fentanyl through the mail. And fentanyl is so powerful that um, it's, it's a pretty lucrative business even moving small amounts. So that has definitely challenged the effectiveness of interdiction efforts. Um, we should continue to try to address that um, for sure. Um, I just, you know, looping back to the, to the briefing, um, plenty of evidence suggests that increasing the, the severity of penalties is not going to deter this type of activity. Anita? Yes, I think that I agree. I mean, I think, first of all, death penalty raises a lot of red flags. I mean, we have to question the constitutionality of that and whether or not it is the right thing to do. Uh, you know, if it goes to, if it were swinging the pendulum to the other side, I mean, if, if that's really the right alternative, I mean, it, it is you know, an extremist view on handling crime in the United States. Um, and, and we have been, you know, trying to deal with the crisis, uh, but we want to be compassionate at the same time. But, you know, at the same token, we, we also need to have stricter laws in place to dealing with high drug uh, trafficking. I mean, fentanyl has been on the streets of Philadelphia um, and has contaminated uh, and, and been tainting um, opioid products, prescription opioid products, illicit products to degrees that put people in comas in hospitalized states and that are untreatable um, and irreversible in many situations. So, I mean, something needs to be done. Um, what the best solution is, I'm not sure if death penalty is the right answer. Yeah. but. Like I said earlier, I think it needs to be litigated and, and maybe end up in the Supreme Court. Evan, you mentioned at the beginning of our interview about the concerns that, that people in the medical profession have uh, about uh, the uh, the criminalization, the harsher criminalization in some of these areas. Where specifically are the concerns uh, of people where that is uh, in play here? I, I think, you know, I think the really important thing to appreciate is that it's very hard to draw a distinct line between people who um, use illicit drugs and people who sell them. Oftentimes, people selling drugs are also using them. They're addicted. Um, even setting aside that point, um, the sort of strategy of going really harshly against sort of large-scale dealers 
um, inevitably means um, sort of interacting through the criminal justice system with people who are who are using substances and purchasing substances from those dealers, which you know sends an impossible message that while you're trying to destigmatize use by you know going after the dealers, you're inherently going to put people who are using substances um, into more um, adversarial positions with law enforcement. So you can't you kind of can't have it both ways, unfortunately. Right. Great having you both with us today. Thank you, Evan. Thank you, Anita. All the best. I'm sure we'll be talking with you again about this. Thank you so much. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.